Speaking of relational conflict, the hottest show on Broadway these days is Hamilton. And yes, they actually made a modern hip-hop version of the life of our founding father, one of our founding fathers, Alexander Hamilton. And the centerpiece of that plot is this decades-long feud that he has between himself and Vice President Aaron Burr, which ultimately leads to their famous duel. There have been over 20 years of these guys not getting along. Petty jealousy, rivalry, outright hatred. I mean, Hamilton did not respect Burr. He thought he was a self-seeking politician. And Burr, for his part, who was born an aristocrat, he didn't respect Hamilton's up-and-coming scrappiness. And so the two decided to settle it like gentlemen. Even though it was illegal back then, in 1804, in our country to have duels. I want you to listen to this song from the musical. It's sung from the perspective of Aaron Burr about what happened that fateful day. Watch this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There are 10 things you need to know. Number one. We rode across the Hudson at dawn. My friend William P. Van Ness signed on as my number, number two. Hamilton arrived with his crew, Nathaniel Pendleton and the doctor that he knew. I watched Hamilton examine the terrain. I wish I could tell you what was happening in his brain. This man has poisoned my political pursuits. Most disputes die and no one shoots. Number four. Hamilton drew first position, looking to the world like a man on a mission. This is a soldier with a marksman's ability. The doctor turned around so he could have deniability. Five. Now I didn't know this at the time, but we were near the same spot. My son died, is that why? He examined his gun with such rigor. I watched as he methodically fiddled with the trigger. Seven. Confession time, here's what I got. My fellow soldiers will tell you I'm a terrible shot. Number eight. Your last chance to negotiate. Send in your second, see if they can set the record straight. They won't teach you this in your classes, but look it up. Hamilton was wearing his glasses. Why? If not to take deadly aim, it's him or me. The world will never be the same. I had only one thought before the slaughter. This man will not make an orphan of my daughter. Number nine. Look him in the eye, aim no higher. Summon all the courage you require, then count. One, two, three. Believe it or not, this had been Hamilton's 11th duel. The 10 before it ended with the other gentleman, he just basically firing in the air above one another's heads as a way of proving their honor and masculinity. But the night before his confrontation with Burr, Hamilton spent some time in prayer and he journaled that he was opposed to duels on spiritual grounds. And then he wrote this, quote, I've resolved if our interview is conducted in the usual manner and it pleases God to give me the opportunity to reserve and throw away my first fire in the air. Well, it did not please God. Hamilton, like his previous duels, fired his first ball in the air but Burr fired his between Hamilton's second and third rib. Up here on the screen, you'll see a picture Steph and I took when we were in New York last week of Hamilton's grave. 
Alexander Hamilton, hero of the revolution, framer of the Constitution, author of the Federalist Papers, creator of our nation's financial system, founder of the Coast Guard, father of eight, and follower of Jesus Christ, dead at 47. So sure he was right, so sure God was on his side. Is God on your side? I know you're not planning on picking up dueling pistols and meeting someone at Zilker Park tomorrow morning, (laughs) but is there a relationship in your life right now that has gone sideways in which you are so sure you're justified that they owe you an apology and you're on the side of the angels? Is there someone you were hoping to not run into at church this morning? Is there someone you would like revenge on? Whose toilet bowl would you like to cover with clear saran wrap if you knew you wouldn't get caught? Is there a deafening silence between you and someone in your family? Maybe even one of your children? Who are you in conflict with these days? Picture that person in your mind. Some of you are having a perfectly good morning until this moment. (laughs) Today, Jesus is going to say in Matthew chapter 5, if you're my follower, it's incumbent upon you to take the initiative. Our text is Matthew 5, 21 to 24. You've heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother or his sister, Raka, is, an answer, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled, and then come back and offer your gift. Before we dive into what Jesus is saying in this passage today, let's talk about what's at stake this morning. Every uh, friendship, marriage, association of any kind comes down to a few critical moments when the relationship hangs in the balance and you must make a hard decision. If you're in a friendship with someone long enough, there is going to be betrayal or frustration or misunderstandings. And when that happens, you're faced with a dilemma. Stay or go, tell the truth, keep the peace, forgive or hold a grudge, take the initiative or leave the ball in their court. And you gotta calculate the risks of the confrontation. All lasting real friendships come down to a few intense moments of decision And when those moments have come for you, how'd you do? I've only had a handful of best friends in my life. Let me introduce you to Dirk. There's this picture coming up on the screen. Uh, As you can see from that photo, we graduated from college together. Uh, Dirk got his degree in theater. I got mine in medieval studies, a couple of very useful majors. Today, he sells mortgages and I'm standing up here in front of you people. Lesson learned. Well, when you meet Dirk, you you notice two things about him immediately. First of all, he's short, five foot three. And the second thing is that he's hilarious. I mean, he regales people with his stories all the time, and he does celebrity impersonations. One Halloween, he dressed up as the Bill from Capitol Hill. Do you remember that old schoolhouse rock song? I'm just a Bill. That was him. And so he he wrapped himself in styrofoam, uh, white styrofoam, and he cut out a a hole for his face and his arms, and he walked around our college campus like that. I asked him why, and he explained to me, well, impersonating legislation is a great way to meet women. 
It, it wasn't. <laughs> so he's the funniest, most talented person I've ever known, but I almost lost him. In fact, I did. For many years, we didn't speak to each other because our friendship came down to a critical moment and I chickened out. See, Dirk got angry with me about something I said about his girlfriend. I had a bad feeling about him being together with this woman. In my mind, they didn't seem to have much in common. I mean, he's so full of life and she seemed like such a downer. And so one day, I finally worked up the nerve to tell my buddy that I disapproved of his girlfriend and he could do a lot better. Unfortunately, my timing was all off on this because I told him on his wedding day. (laughs) True story, we're in the dressing room at the church putting on our tuxedos and I'm like, dude, my car is parked out back. It's not too late. Wherever you're going on the honeymoon, you and I can just go. And uh, I didn't say that, that honeymoon part, but, but I told him that he was making a huge mistake and I didn't like this girl. I've said many insensitive things in my life that have hurt a lot of people, but this was one of the worst. He was devastated. He loved her. He was about to pledge his life to her. I was so wrong. If I was really going to tell him my true feelings about his fiance, I should have done it months before. So two months after that episode, I was getting married to Stephanie, and Dirk was grudgingly in my wedding. And when I ran into him and his new wife at the rehearsal dinner, I was like, hey, and it was awkward. I could tell by the look on her face I was not going to be on their Christmas card list that year. And, And as excited I was about getting married myself that weekend, there was kind of this cloud that was cast over the experience for me because I knew there was a separation between me and my buddy. I knew I had to talk to him. I had to ask for forgiveness from him and from his wife. I wanted to give them my blessing, but I dreaded the conversation. It was just gonna be too painful, too embarrassing. And I'm ashamed to admit to all of you this morning, my friendship with Dirk came down to a critical moment and I had no guts. And so now, instead of a best friend, all I have is that picture. Whose picture would you put on the screen this morning? Is a relationship with a friend or a spouse or a parent or a sibling in which the words of forgiveness have just been left unsaid, words that could bring healing or restoration or at least some closure in the relationship? Every meaningful relationship comes down to a few critical moments. And I wonder if this morning is gonna be a critical moment for you. Jesus begins the section of scripture with the phrase, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you. It's important to understand how Jesus teaches. Often his messages are a response to conventional wisdom. Jesus' style is to point out in commonly held beliefs how inaccurate or even comical they are. One of my favorite parts about the way Jesus teaches is his subtle sarcasm that he uses with people. Especially when there's wrong thinking and nowhere was there more wrong thinking than the religious experts of the time, the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees believed to have a healthy, happy relationship, uh, you had to follow rules. In fact, they concocted hundreds of rules. And the very first and most important of the rules of friendship they wrote down was do not murder. Brilliant, right? 
Mr. Pharisee, how do you do it? How do you have all these wonderfully meaningful relationships? Well, I don't assassinate anyone. <laughs> the Pharisees had all kinds of other codes, like how to respect property rights. They had many rules about how to officially greet someone when you walked into them on the street or, or where people had to sit at parties. The Pharisees figured that if they followed all the rules, they could be happy relationally. And Jesus, I think, is having a little fun at their expense here in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, congratulations, you don't murder people. You're really careful to keep all of your rules of relationships. But if I could, could I add just a couple of more to your list? Let's read on. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. All right, let me explain some of the terms in this passage. Jesus is saying, if you're angry with someone, you got to be really careful about where that might lead. It could very well lead to judgment. And then he says, if anyone says, Racha, then the person who said that word would be taken before the Jewish high court, the Supreme Court. Raka in Jesus' culture was a statement of contempt about another person. It was a way to put them down in public. And interesting, Raka comes from the sound that your throat makes when you spit. And so it was a way of spitting on the ground, separating yourself, putting yourself on the inner circle and them on the outside. You know, our modern equivalent of Raka would you know, to, be, to make fun of someone's political beliefs or their religious beliefs or their intelligence or their hair color or, or their mama. Um, my, my sons and I make fun of each other on this level quite a bit until we realize, oh, wait a second, we're making fun of the person I'm married to and their grandmother. Uh, and and one, so, so, so my, my kids uh, like to make jokes to me like, dad, you're like a Christmas tie, you're loud and useless. To which I respond, you're like school at Thanksgiving, no class. <laughs> That's raka. And anyone who says raka should be dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. Jesus is about to make an even more ridiculous statement. He says, anyone who calls his neighbor a fool should go to hell. The word hell here, Jesus uses Gehenna, which is a literal place right outside the walls of Jerusalem where they dump their trash and then lit it on fire. So Jesus says, if you call someone a fool, you should be thrown into a burning ha- uh, uh, ash heap. And, and can you see what Jesus is doing in this passage? It's subtle, and it's all kinds of sarcastic. He's telling the Pharisees, they're able to follow the rules. They may be experts in proper etiquette, but their hearts are filled with anger and prejudicial attitudes towards their fellow human beings. Jesus isn't giving them new rules about anger or spitting or calling people a fool. Jesus instead is saying to religious people, you can be hypocrites when it comes to relationships. In our day, there aren't any Pharisees. Many of us uh, buy into a more modern conventional wisdom, which is live and let live. We have a politically correct culture. It says, don't infringe on my rights, and I'm not going to let you infringe, uh, and I won't infringe on yours. And, and don't judge someone else. Don't let them judge you. We have a politically correct culture, and there's a piece that's really good about political correctness, which is it's elevated our sensitivity to how other people respond to words. That's a good thing. And yet, I think Jesus would look at the headlines in our country 
in the last year, and he would say, you live and let live. Congratulations. You can follow your rules. You don't troll anyone on Facebook. Good for you. But what about your heart? Did you know that recent studies that were released just three weeks ago say that we are more racially divided in this country than we were during the Rodney King riots in the early 90s? Did you know that the poll that came out two weeks ago said that we are more divided politically than we ever have been since the time they've been taking polls? There's a lot of decorum going on, but underneath there's anger. There's this thing now called road rage. Where people take it out physically what they're feeling in their car. One in four Americans have committed road rage, and that's just in our gateway parking lot getting out of here on Sunday morning. <laughs> 300 people last year died because of road rage. 12,000 people were assaulted. And there seems to be an anger problem in Austin. You know, I know some of you are watching in Branson right now and, and uh, around the world. I don't know what's going on in your town. But here, it seems like it's getting to be a little bit more of an angry place. I just look at the bumper stickers that are in cars. I swear, I've never lived in a town before where people have so much zeal about proclaiming their true feelings on a witty and inflammatory sticker on the back of their car. So one of my passions in life, one of my um, hobbies is to collect bumper stickers. I'll, I'll pull up behind cars and I'm like, oh, that's a good one. Here are a couple, here are a couple of my favorites. Uh, I pulled up behind this car and I was like, wow, that's an interesting, oh, wait a second. That's not very nice. You ever see those stick figure things that people put on the back of their cars? I saw this one. We ate your stick family. It's kind of inflammatory. This is a political election year. People like to tell you who they're voting for. This guy said, Ben Kenobi, 2016. <laughs> After watching two political conventions, I don't blame him. And finally, I'm gonna slap this baby on my next road trip. My state's bigger than your state. On the outside, we're more pol politically correct. And in some ways, in good ways, we're more sensitive to other people. But on the inside, anger is at an all-time high. And Jesus says, what's that about? You're a good person, but there's this thing in your heart. Jesus continues on in this passage. Now he's gonna recommend the step that we take to, to heal our heart and to remedy any rift between us and someone we love. Verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister and then come and offer your gift. Again, you need to look at the cultural context. Jesus is painting a word picture here of the urgency of making things right with people. He sets the scene. You're Jewish, and you're in the Jerusalem temple, and you're offering up your gift to God at the altar. This was a sacred moment in the life of Jews. It happened once a year. And so there were actual laws in place in the temple that you were not allowed to interrupt someone who was offering their gift. And if you were offering a gift, you could not leave uh, your gift there for any reason. And yet, the relationships in our lives are so important to God that he would rather have us abandon our religious activity to go make things right with our friends. It's the difference between religion, which is about activity and rules, and real faith, 
which is about moving closer to God and to people. Jesus' lasting relationships come down to a few critical moments in which you have to decide whether or not you're going to speak the truth or leave the words unsaid. And in that moment, the relationship hangs in the balance. So when you feel a tug in your heart, Jesus says, drop whatever you're doing and go make it right. If you're at work, cut out early. If you're at a holiday dinner with your family, pull someone aside first before you sit down. If you're driving in your car, pick up your phone, hands-free, of course. And even if you're in church, Jesus says, here at Gateway, he says, I'd rather you got up and walked out in the middle of the service than stand there and sing songs about how much you love me and listen to Ted drone on for over 30 minutes, knowing that there is a division between you and someone else. Why does he care? Because whenever there is a wedge between you and another person, there's a wedge between you and God. First John 4, if anyone says I love God yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. It's hard to fully give your heart to God, John says, if your heart is occupied with resentment towards somebody else. Doing this is gonna take some courage. It's a simple act to go talk to someone, but it is not easy. So you've pictured this person in your mind, your Aaron Burr, or your Dirk, in my case. You're here in church, you feel some conviction about it. Now what? I say simply go and ask them the question, are we okay? Three simple words. They're a question, they're not an accusation. But there are three words that would have saved a small group from splitting apart. They are three simple words that might have helped a business relationship not dissolve. There are three words that would have made the dinner table at Thanksgiving a lot less tense. There are three words that would have kept a husband and wife from freezing each other out for an entire week. There are three words that would have opened up the line of communications between a parent and a kid. Are we okay? Jesus gives his are we okay plan in Matthew 18. Starting in verse 15, if a fellow believer hurts you, Go and tell him. Work it out just between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along with you uh, so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest. And try again. Jesus says, if you sense a disturbance between you and another person, this is really simple, but it's not easy. He says, you go and talk to them. Not you go and talk to other people about it. That's gossip. Go and have a conversation between the two of you. And Jesus says, if that conversation doesn't go well, then take one or two impartial outside people for outside perspective so that the other party can feel like they're not being teamed up against and that they can understand. I say, start this conversation out with, with the question, are we okay? It's not aggressive. It opens up the discussion. And once you've done that, here are a few other recommendations. When you're having this conflict resolution, are we okay conversation. First of all, affirm the relationship. Speak from the heart and tell this person on the other side how you care about them and the, and the relationship. Talk about what the disagreement, how it's affected you or the people around us. 
Secondly, this is the most important one, make observations rather than accusations. Chances are there are a lot of assumptions on both sides. Chances are you don't have all the facts. Chances are you can't see their perspective. So don't start out with accusations like you're a liar, or you completely threw me under the bus, or you cheated me, or hypothetically, you're a lazy bum on Saturday afternoons in the fall as you sit on the couch listlessly watching football for hours while I'm relegated to taking care of your three offspring because you figured you worked so hard preaching that morning and you deserve a little me time. (laughs) All right, that was a little personal. It's better to make observations, to check your assumptions. And that's exactly what Stephanie did to me many years ago. She said, hey, look, I understand that you're tired and you worked hard, but when you check out for hours like that, it just makes me feel like I'm alone. You can't argue with someone's feelings about what happened. That's why I say use the XY principle. When you do X, it makes me feel Y. Or when I saw you do X, I reached the conclusion of why. Is that the right conclusion to draw? Make observations, not accusations. Third, apologize if appropriate. I'm sorry, the two hardest words to say in the English language. But it takes two to tango. Inevitably, wrongdoing happens on both sides. And so if there's something you need to own, then own it, even if the other side doesn't apologize to you. And then finally, wrap up by saying, again, are we okay? Once the conversation's winding down and both sides have had a chance to express their perspective, say, are we okay? Because I want this to be, what can I do to make this okay? And if it's within reason, make a plan together about how things are gonna be different. Listen, I'm not naive about this, at least. Um, some, Some of this is gonna be too difficult, and that's why Jesus says, hey, if it doesn't work, Bring someone else along for a second conversation. And that's why the Apostle Paul later says in Romans 12, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You talked to someone once, you brought some other people along the second time, they weren't willing to reconcile. Paul says, you've done your part. That's good. And John Burke is going to be here the next couple of weeks talking to us about what you do when someone has hurt you and how you can experience real forgiveness in a relationship. I know it's not fair for me to stand here today and ask you to be the bigger person. In your mind, that other individual should be the one apologizing or taking the initiative. Today, Jesus says, though, if you're my follower, if you take seriously our relationship together, then I want you to be the one who makes the initiative. It's up to you to end the cycle of hostility. It's up to you to stop the dueling. It's up to you to stop playing tug of war. Many years ago, we had our very first men's retreat at Gateway, it was called Dude Fest. 50, yes, 50 smelly, sweaty guys camped out at the Massengale Ranch. And uh, it was sort of like a uh, combination of a Bible study and Lord of the Flies. (laughs) Yeah, we did some spiritual stuff, but we also, as men, we uh, ate meat cooked off of sticks on an open flame. And we expressed ourselves freely with bodily sounds and talk of automotive repair and pro wrestling. Testosterone flowed like a river that weekend, my friends. The centerpiece of the weekend was uh, 
competition. So when we got there, we were divided into eight tribes or teams, and all weekend long we competed against the other teams in games of skill and games of chance and games of athleticism and brute force. And the penultimate competition was at the very end of the weekend. It was the tug of war. You know tug of war where two sides line up and they try to pull each other across the center line. It's a game of endurance and some strategy and raw muscle. Unfortunately, my team had none of these things. (laughs) We were the laughing stock the whole weekend. We had not won anything. Um, And yet, we had something that was better than brute strength or cunning. We had girth. There were some big boys on my team. And so we won every match. I mean, we would wear people down and then yank them across the loser's line. We were plowing through the competition until we got to the finals with this other team. And uh, that other team, when we saw the looks on their faces, they knew that they were beaten before, the, before it even started. I mean, they just looked intimidated, like they were going to be outgunned or at least outweighed by 600 pounds. <laughs> and we took our places opposite them knowing that we were on the verge of tug-of-war immortality. The referee blew the whistle, we reached down deep for everything we had, and we tugged. Do you know what the other team did? They let go of the rope. (laughs) And there was this kinetic reaction, and the next thing we knew, all these bodies were flying into the heap of mud and sweat, and when the dust finally cleared, we looked over the other side, and they were high-fiving each other and dancing like they just won the Super Bowl. And we wanted to be mad, but we couldn't because it was hilarious. (laughs) This morning, I want you to consider that the greatest power in the universe is love. And love's secret weapon is when it lets go of the rope. Gandhi, MLK, Jesus triumphed against tremendous evil and ridiculous odds because they were willing to let go of the rope when people were pulling against them. They would turn the other cheek. They would go the extra mile. Every one of us in this room bears on our hands the calluses of tugging against people that we loved or we should be able to get along with. Rivals, peers at work, bosses, people from our past, spouse, kids, parents, we silently grapple with them. And we want to win. We want to be right. Like Alexander Hamilton, we want satisfaction. I want you to look, literally, just look at your hands for a moment. Who is on the other end of your rope today? Who's God calling you to go to? Well, I'd been in many church services, and God was speaking to me about Dirk and so many of them. When I'd take communion, God would say, hey, before you eat this bread and drink this juice, I think you need to think about your relationship with your old friend. So finally, uh, I made a special trip to St. Louis to go talk to him. And we had a meal together, made some small talk, and then I finally said, man, I messed up our friendship. I'm so sorry. I never should have done that. And he blew it off. He said, oh, it's no big deal. It's in the past. And I can't say that we became best buds after that. But I do know that the wedge between me and God was gone. 